Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of science and spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. This week, we are going to talk about ancestry and biological essentialism. Strap in. This is going to be a fun and kind of long episode, but hopefully you find it interesting. We had a lot of fun researching it. But before we do that, it is Phil's turn to do our What Happened on This Day. So Phil, go ahead and take it away. So we are recording this on the 13th of November. So on this day in 1893 marked the birth of one Edward Adelbert Doisy, an American biochemist who shared with Henrik Dam the 1943 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for his isolation and synthesis of vitamin K, a substance that encourages blood clotting. In 1936 through 39, he isolated two forms of the vitamin, K1 from lucerne seed and K2 from fish meal in a pure crystalline form, determined their chemical structures and synthesized the vitamin. With the embryologist Edgar Atlin, 1922 to 34, Doisy also developed assay techniques that facilitated research on sex hormones, eventually isolating the sex hormones estrone, estriol, and estradiol. Nice. Good job with all those pronunciations. Thank you. I tried. (laughs) So before we get into the science of today's episode, let's talk about ancestry and specifically ancestor work, what it is and where it is practiced. Ancestry, extremely complicated. Everything we talk about is extremely complicated. It's almost like things have nuance. And ancestor work, I probably going forward will use the term ancestor veneration. That is generally the more scholarly used term and makes the most sense, I think, cross-culturally. Ancestor veneration is not any simpler than ancestry. It's practiced around the world in as various forms as there are humans. There are secular ways that we venerate our ancestors and there are deeply religious ways, but I think we all do it to some degree. I think there's definitely aspects of more quote-unquote work in which we get really in-depth with it, but I think In a way, there's a lot of veneration of ancestors, whether that's your direct lineage or your direct ancestors or rather like an ancestor of place. I guess that kind of leads us into what is the history again. This one was kind of easy and also kind of difficult for me to look up because ancestor veneration has often been called the oldest religion in the world. And I don't think that's incorrect. I think we see evidence of burial practices and veneration, Stone Age, pre-Stone Age humans. As early as we can trace humans, there is evidence of two things, usually ancestor veneration and some degree of animism. I honestly don't even know where one could even begin to talk about the full history of ancestor veneration because I don't think it has, unlike a lot of things like astral projection, which is a very traceable history, I don't think ancestor veneration has a traceable history because it is literally found in every single culture around the world in some form. So when do you think it became popular in the occult community? I agree with you in that it's found throughout the world in many different forms. But I feel like in terms of Western esotericism, there was a point in which ancestor veneration really began to take off. And even now, that's one of the kind of the first, like within spirit work specifically, when people are talking about getting into that, ancestor veneration is really kind of the first thing that people point towards to like begin engaging with spirits. So when do you think it became popular in Western esotericism? I mean, maybe what the influence was for that? It's interesting because if you look at like, we talk so much about the Victorians here, right? But I actually think, interestingly enough, ancestor veneration is not one of the things that the Victorians were extremely concerned about, which I find kind of odd. Like they were super into, you know, Orientalism or 
the obsession with the classical age or Kemeticism, there's not actually a lot of ancestor veneration going on. You know, you don't see a lot of the English Victorians celebrating Anglo-Saxons <laughs> or Bretons. Like you don't you don't see a lot of that happening in the Victorian age, which I think is is pretty interesting. Another point of note is is when you look at the New Age community, there is quite a heavy emphasis on healing TM. That you we could probably do a whole episode on what the heck they mean by healing. Well, what does healing mean? So oftentimes there's this idea of healing. You hear this over and it's kind of bled out of the new age community into, I see it on Instagram a lot when I used to go on Instagram, of healing past trauma. And we've talked a little bit about epigenetics and trauma on- Like generational trauma? Yeah. We talked about which episode was that? It was the episode about whether we have like an innate connection to divinity. I don't remember yeah. the number, but it was that one. Yeah. Yeah, so there there's this emphasis on like healing your ancestral trauma in some way, which is I think related a lot to ancestor veneration or as it has become known like ancestor work where it's less about honoring the dead and more about developing a conversation with them and almost fixing something. There's this emphasis on dialoguing with your ancestors to fix problems in your family dynamic. Again, it's hard to put a, a finger on when it became popular, but I, I think it's really only been popularized in the Western world fairly recently, I would say maybe even the 20th century. Now, ancestor veneration is extremely important in Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism. It's important in a lot of Eastern traditions and is always been important and is still important today. There, there is often a heavy emphasis on ancestor veneration in, in a lot of those cultures. And even ancestor veneration is also really important in indigenous communities as well, especially communities that are under the effects of colonialism also often have a very big emphasis on ancestor veneration. But as we see it in the modern Western quote-unquote witchy community, I think that is only a little bit more recently. Let's talk about the connection between ancestry and DNA. Ancestry and its tied to DNA, and then following that, the legitimation of someone being involved in a specific tradition is really fascinating to me. And I think we actually need to define some specific terms and their relationships to one another before we continue. So ancestry lumps together ideas of race, ethnicity, nationality, and culture, usually into kind of one. They all fall under this umbrella, but they are distinctly different and they'll influence on how one approaches ancestor veneration and then also how they discuss that within the community. So race refers to a, a group of people who possess similar and distinct physical characteristics. So these are things that are controlled by your DNA, so your genome, the phenotypes that are controlled by the gene expression of a particular population, things like eye color, hair color, skin color, so on. Ethnicity or ethnic groups refers to a category of people who regard themselves to be different from another group based on cultural, national, and social experience. So a person must share common cultural significance, so language, their homeland, race, religion, cuisine, art, so on and so forth, to be a part of an ethnic group. And there are hundreds of ethnic groups on single continents and even in specific countries. What comes to mind immediately, based on what I know, is that India has a ton of ethnic groups within it. So ethnic groups can be, there are so, so many of them. I would argue thousands. Culture is the way of life that consists of the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people. It refers more to the social aspects of life learned than a society. And it is similar to ethnicity, 
But in the way I've seen it described, it's more generalized. And so you can have kind of multiple ethnic groups within one culture, although those ethnic groups are differentiated amongst themselves by differences in their traditions. And then nationality specifically is really just a legal term. So it pertains to the country in which somebody holds citizenship. So referring to a place where they were born. It's really just a legal relationship and it shouldn't have really, in my opinion, much emphasis in this topic. So we probably won't discuss that much moving forward. I just have a question for both of you. Do you think these terms are maybe interchanged or overgeneralized too much? And if so, how does that impact the discussions surrounding ancestor veneration among the witchcraft community? Race in kind of a toxic way and also with nationality they can be kind of i mean with nationality and culture they, those things kind of can be co-identified but that's not necessarily always the case and particularly when you go like we're obviously talking about ancestry when we're talking about your historical nationality you may not have necessarily have that same cultural experience that your ancestors did and so it gets messy very very quickly when we go back along family trees i think I think especially as an American, as an American, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I think especially as an American, there's so much confusion and conflation with these ideas because, you know, it is the quote unquote melting pot that it is mind boggling. There is no one American culture, but yet there's one American nationality. You're all quote unquote American, right? And there's little subcultures, but then there's often times it's like, well, we're American. And, and there's like this idea of culture and heritage and connectedness that doesn't translate to everybody. And especially as a country that's so young, I think it's also, again, there is there is no one American culture. And so it gets kind of confusing very quickly. I didn't talk about this specifically, but I think a lot of people conflate culture with heritage as well. So you can say that you're from like, for like me, for instance, I come from like an Asian Indian heritage, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm a part of that culture because I grew up in America. I mean, I lived a very Americanized life with some Asian Indian influence, specifically cooking. <laughs> For me, that's where I do all my Indian stuff. And so I think that's completed a lot as well, where people will say like, oh, I want to be a part of this culture because I have family, you know, however long removed that were, you know, this nationality. Then they kind of use that heritage as an excuse to then engage in the culture, even though they may not really understand it to the extent that it would be needed to actually do so and be respectful in the way it's done. So I think that's also something that I see a lot. Another thing that gets really difficult in a lot of, especially in the 1900s, so America experienced a lot of immigration from Europe in the 1900s and the 1890s. And then again, now from a lot of other areas, but it was primarily Europe in the 1900s. And a lot of these were because of things that were going on in the 1890s and 1900s in Europe, specifically in Ireland. There's a lot of Swedish people from that era, but I'm not actually super versed in Swedish history. Italy was another big one. That's where you see a lot of cropping up of Irish Americans, Italian Americans. And one of the things, too, that is a part of American immigrant history is the assimilator die. So a lot of times people from those cultures were forced to give up their culture because it was assimilator die, especially if you didn't speak English. Like if you came from Eastern Europe, a lot of times you change. Like I have several people where they're like, I don't know where my ancestors are from because they changed their name at Ellis Island. And there was this very much idea of people either willingly or forcibly were changing their names, changing the language that they spoke, and literally separating their children from that culture intentionally, which I think in a lot of ways today can leave people with feelings of anxiety about their culture and heritage. 
because it was forcibly taken from them. But now it's so far removed that it's like grasping at straws. Well, then we can't forget the impact of colonization on everything too, right? Like, and I think that's where part of the erasure comes from is as certain areas were colonized by others, these these cultures, these vibrant cultures and these traditions, I mean, even the ethnic groups were kind of just like wiped out in a sense that they were just colored over. And so the traditions have been lost over time where they've been assimilated so much that they're unrecognizable, which has caused like, I think the Celtic tradition specifically is one that we've lost a lot about the original practices and traditions. And so it's kind of definitely a, um, people are trying to restore those original traditions by looking at the history, but it's so difficult because of how much of that history was actually erased. And that's only one example. And there's, there's hundreds of those. I think it can also go in the other direction where you have diaspora potentially from events like slavery colonization maybe from migration which was driven by particular historical events and there's a kind of cultural imperative to restore what can be remembered but those traditions evolve over time so perhaps there are certain things that are remembered but they change with generations and they become something new and they evolve so an Irish American experience might not be the same as an Irish experience for example and that's not to say that those experiences and the heritage isn't valid but they're not necessarily the same thing owing to the sort of evolution. Canada is in a very similar vein to America in terms of melting pot and immigration. Lots of immigrants who immigrated to the U.S. also went to Canada or and Quebec has the phrase je me souviens, which means I remember. What's interesting about that is, is the idea of je me souviens is I remember our culture. I remember our tradition. I remember our language and I remember the memories of my ancestors. What's interesting about Quebec is they actually don't allow, at least they didn't, for a long time, allow English words to be adopted into the French language, whereas France would say things like ce weekend for the weekend or this weekend. In Quebec, they would say uh, le fin de la semaine, the end of the week. So they would actually Frenchify English words and not allow English phrases for a long time to be used in advertisements. So I find that fascinating because that's very much like a, I don't want to say national, Quebec keeps trying to separate, but they're kind of like their own nationality in, in a lot of ways. It's very much this governmental heritage connection to France, but like French Canadians are very, very different from people from France. But I think that that's interesting that it's it's even a part of their governmental slogan and literal laws, <laughs> this idea of keeping their heritage and tradition alive. I think that's really, really interesting. And also it's it's, it's interesting because um, there is a certain level of sort of animosity between French people from France and French Canadians, which is strange when you think that, you know, one of these is trying to preserve the original tradition, but it's just because these things have sort of evolved in parallel, like you explained. So let's bring up the question that everybody, this is like common witch tweet discourse. Does your ancestor have to be related by blood to like be legitimate or to let you work with them what are your thoughts on that my unbiased opinion is it depends on who you ask but my actual opinion is no (laughs) in certain traditions like i believe in some sort of karmic doctrine of taoism there is this idea of inheriting karma as an example that your karma passes on between your ancestors so there, there is that sort of idea of this very heavy emphasis on bloodlines and lineage. And we see this in countries that have caste systems, a very heavy emphasis on lineage. You know, your ancestor is literally who your bloodline is. But you often see people define other kinds of ancestors, like there's ancestors of community or culture, ancestors of place, ancestors of profession. And this does actually have a historical basis. 
there's always been this camaraderie between, say, people who are in ancient Athens. They feel this kinship towards Theseus because Theseus is the founder of Athens. Although he's not literally all of their ancestors, they hero worship him as the ancestor of their city. And this is seen all throughout ancient Greece with hero worship. There are multiple kinds of heroes, and one of the main kinds of heroes is the hero who founded a city in which they're kind of viewed this collective ancestor. Now, when it comes to ancestors of profession, I'm not entirely sure the historical basis. There has always been this honoring of the, you know, especially in apprenticeship systems, which we don't really use so much anymore, but were really commonplace for a while. There, there was kind of a lineage that would happen of apprentices. Now, I haven't exactly looked into any information onto veneration of them, but I think one could see by having pictures of them or honoring their texts. You know, people will dedicate a charity in someone's name. I think that is an act of veneration. It's a more secular form of veneration. So I don't think it's a far leap to consider an ancestor profession a certain kind of cultural ancestor. I think there are your blood relatives and then there are cultural ancestors. And sometimes I intersect and sometimes they don't. Minor segue to that. Hanny and I have joked before that our PI like line of succession is could essentially be used as a form of ancestor veneration. I don't know how we would actually do that effectively, but it was a funny thought. So um, I'm going to preface this entire discussion with the fact that I don't actually do any ancestor work for personal reasons. So my opinion on this is somewhat limited. But one of the bugbears I have around the whole idea of bloodlines is that it doesn't really work for many family structures. So some examples are donor babies and adoptees. Um, I myself am a donor baby, which means that I was conceived using donor gametes. So my biological parent isn't the same as the parent who raised me. So I don't really see a reason why I'd connect to my bloodline, who I've never met, I don't know anything about, more than somebody whose values actually have a formative impact on my childhood and on my, on my personal growth. That doesn't really make sense to me. Um, I know that there are some places which have more of an emphasis on kind of individual bloodlines, but I don't see the logic in that myself. I will also preface this by saying that I don't do ancestor veneration for some personal reasons that I won't get into, but I don't think that you need to be related to somebody by blood for them to be your ancestor. There are lots of examples of this where a good friend from a culture outside of your own be accepted into the family, and then the ancestors of those within a bloodline extends to the person who's brought in. This also, again, works with donor babies or even people who have been adopted, so on and so forth. And in fact, we actually see pretty massive problems, I would say, with the idea of tradition being kept to bloodlines within the Norse and heathen communities who are consistently fighting against racism and anti-Semitism based on the idea of DNA purity. So people in different traditions had different takes on this, but I do think that this idea of like bloodline purity based on tradition has caused a lot of like massive rifts and has introduced a lot of like racist and anti-Semitic thought into our communities that really isn't appropriate or helping anything at all. The idea of bloodlines falls apart immediately once you extend it outside of people who were conceived by the two people who raised them. As soon as you introduce people who are donor conceived, people who are adopted, people who have half siblings people who have moved to different cultures at a very young age, I, I think it all falls apart very quickly. <laughs> this is kind of related to what I was saying earlier, but I think there's also an importance on DNA in different cultures. DNA and also 
ancestry. You know, people joke a lot that you can't have start a conversation with an American without them being like, I'm 50% Irish and 25% Swedish and 5% Italian. You know, it, it's, it's, it is true. You know, I've it's had so like seven of those conversations in the last week. Yeah. Used to work in a famous tourist attraction. Can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think what's important to note that in America, unless you are indigenous, all of the communities are by and large diasporic in which there are people coming from other cultures and other countries and settling in new communities. So I think that is one of the reasons why importance on DNA, especially now, is so big is, again, like I said in the beginning, there was assimilate or die it was and still is in many ways the motto here people talk about you know immigration in america and melting pot but it's if you know anything about immigration america um it has never been good not once not once has it been good it has always been terrible it's always been bad there's this idea of once you assimilate into this weird amorphous american culture you will succeed which i think has left a lot of people especially those who like know that they are say italian and they have an Italian name, they look very Italian, and they like make Italian food all the time. They have these bits and pieces of Italian culture, but they feel this sort of agony in a way that they're not able to connect with this thing that is a part of them. I think a lot of times people feel a kind of kinship with their homeland counterparts. However, this sentiment is understandably not always reciprocated from the people who are then from those original countries. These diaspora communities form their own subcultures. So where I am, the Irish-American community is like extremely prominent. They are their own subculture <laughs> and are very like notable and have their own culture that shares nothing with uh, not shares nothing, but there are parts of it that share nothing with Ireland and also parts of it that share nothing with the greater community. And you're like, what is happening here? Same with Italian-Americans in my area. That is another, where I live is it was a very big immigration city. So there's a lot of uh, little subcultures here. Or like the neighborhood I live in is heavily, heavily, heavily Greek. There's often these subcultures that are formed. It's like they're Irish-American, but they're not irish but they're not the greater amorphous, quote unquote, American. Now they kind of are because there are so many Irish Americans. But for quite some time, they were very much not in America. It used to be WASP or fuck off, essentially. And for those of you who don't know, WASP stands for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. By contrast, it's pretty different over here, unless you're in particular communities. But just speaking from my own experience, the UK's history, like the UK, given that the history is pretty much invaded by a different group, invaded, 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 colonized vast swathes of the world, then world war, lots of immigration. There's there's so much cultural exchange over such a long history that it means that we're made up of many, many different groups. I think there is some level of frustration which comes in when maybe people from the outside looking in don't see that kind of admixture. So I think there's less of an emphasis on belonging to a particular group because it's very, very difficult to trace back. You know, you can't say, oh, I'm Celtic, or oh, I have Viking DNA, that's just not how it works. Whereas somebody who's maybe looking into their history more superficially and finds out that they have ancestry from Scotland might assume, oh, I'm Celtic, I have Celtic ancestry. That's not necessarily true because Anglo-Saxons are also represented in certain parts of Scotland, depending where you are. So I just think it's important to acknowledge that there's, it's very, very heterogeneous and 
we're all going to have different perspectives on how important ancestry is because we're all coming from different places. I do think it's very amusing when people come over and they get um, scammed on their clan tartan. Like there's definitely an industry that capitalizes on this idea of heritage. And I think maybe that's why some people fall into this idea of a romanticized, very simplified, streamlined family tree and a story to go with it. Like that's the important thing, right? Rarely are family trees ever so easy to, you know, simplify into a story like that. So I think another thing to note before we start getting to some of the science of DNA is closed practices. Hot button topic this year. Man, oh man, it seemed like every other day there every, something else was getting closed. And what I think is kind of alarming to me is that often at first, I could not tell if the person who was saying it was a folkist or if they were a well-meaning leftist. They kind of sounded the same, which I think is kind of concerning. It is important to acknowledge that closed practices do exist. However, they are there to protect the tradition, usually as a result of colonization. A lot of indigenous practices are closed as a way to protect the tradition from colonization and the effects of colonization. Also, the term closed practice is not really that descriptive. There are ethno-religions and initiatory traditions. Those are the two main ones, I think. So an example of an initiatory tradition would be voodoo. Even if you are born with Haitian DNA, does not mean that you are allowed to practice voodoo. I think Lilith Dorsey talked about this with Magnolias and Magic a little while back. I can, I think it was like, what is a close practice? I, we can link that episode. She talks all about specifically as close practices relate to voodoo. It is still an initiatory tradition. Another initiatory tradition is traditional British Wicca. A Gardnerian Wiccan and Alexandrian Wiccan are still closed, quote unquote, initiatory traditions. Another kind of tradition would be an ethno-religion. Something like Judaism and uh, Yazidism are often classified as ethno-religions. Yazidism is found amongst the Kurds who live in Turkey and diasporic communities. Ethno-religions are complicated because some of them are technically semi-initiatory, are allowed to be initiated in depending on your exact sect. Obviously, something like Hasidism is not initiatory at all and is even close to some Jews as well because they're very much this idea of you have to be born uh, to be a Hasidic Jew. Oftentimes there are these ethno-traditions, ethno-religions, which are passed on by your direct ancestors. Oftentimes, at least in Yazidism, they don't tend to marry outside of the tradition either. Although some of them can be a little bit more open to potentially allowing people in when there is problems of violence and genocide, which then dwindle the numbers of the ethno-religious group. I feel it's maybe worth mentioning that there are things that are not necessarily closed, but they're geographically tied. So you'll often hear to people referring to kind of spirits of place, and you can only really work with those if you are in that particular place which is, is not necessarily a closed practice, but in practice, it's closed <laughs> unless you're actually able to make it over there. And the other thing is, and I think this just should go without saying, but the idea that if you are going to kind of acknowledge a culture and ancestry, even if it's not closed, you should be affording a certain level of understanding and respect to that culture before you engage with it. That shouldn't need to be said, but I think unfortunately often it, it does. <laughs> now it's time to get into the science. 
my favorite part. <laughs> You're probably aware of companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, where you can basically spit in a tube and they will send you a very pretty report telling you your ancestry and various other things. It's actually a common misconception that these companies sequence your genome. So sequencing means that you're basically determining the sequence of base pairs in your genome, so A, T, C, G, etc. Rather than actually sequencing the whole thing, they use an approach called genotyping using a microarray. And a microarray is made up of lots and lots and lots, around 600,000 single-stranded DNA probes. And these probes correspond to particular variants in the genome. When each probe meets a sufficiently similar sequence from the participant's genome, they'll fluoresce and it will generate a signal. So you have a, a total signal that's generated from thousands of known DNA variants. And from these signals, we can infer certain things about health and ancestry. But it's important to note that they don't inc include the entire human genome. And in fact, around only around 2% of the genome is represented by a lot of microarray analyses. Before we continue, I think it's important to kind of go back to high school biology and talk about how genes are passed down in the first place. Through a process called meiosis, there are specialized cells called gametes, essentially the egg and the sperm, which are generated and contain only half the number of chromosomes as a somatic cell. A typical cell will contain 46 chromosomes, and then a gamete only contains 23. Meiosis, in part, is what makes each of us unique, because after the DNA is replicated, it's shuffled, for lack of a better term, with events like crossovers that cause a mixing of chromosomes. And then the cell that contains these shuffled chromosomes are then split and it divides a second time to produce four unique gametes that are all ready for fertilization. At fertilization, the gametes will come together and form a cell called a zygote, which contains the unique genome of that individual. And then the zygote will undergo normal mitotic division to grow into a multicellular organism. Back to microarrays and our signals made from these thousands of gene variants, how do we infer ancestry from these? Well, genes code for proteins, which then affect essential biological processes, but not all of the genome is responsible for protein coding, only parts that are called the exome. Ancestry information can come from any part of the genome, but typically microarrays will focus on protein coding genes because those are connected with like phenotypic traits that you would see. Some companies do actually use whole genome sequencing, but it's actually quite expensive to sequence a genome. It's getting cheaper and cheaper, but it's still... Compared to a microarray analysis, it's still pretty pricey, so a lot don't. You can get it done, it tends to be low coverage, um, but it can also address issues that we'll talk about in a minute. The limitations of microarrays, because microarrays are, they are useful, they give us lots of useful information, but there are some problems associated with them. When we're looking, what do we mean by when we're looking at variants? A lot of the time we're looking at things called single nucleotide polymorphisms. And I'm just going to call them SNPs because that's what we call them in the labs. They basically refer to a single nucleotide variation in a particular position. So basically when you have a substitution of, say, a G is replaced by a C, for example. And these may or may not affect the eventual protein sequence, but often variants of interest do. Examples of common SNPs which lead to differences might be tasting coriander. You might have a SNP that leads you to taste coriander-like soap. It's a very, very, very tiny difference. It's only one base, but it can lead to quite a big change. So then these SNPs are basically used to, and they're grouped together to infer haplotypes. Haplotypes are basically collections of variants which frequently co-occur in particular populations. Due to the way that they're arranged on the chromosome, they they're typically inherited from one parent only. These groups of SNPs cluster together in ways that we can sort of infer linkage to particular ancestral groups. So haplotype mapping is performed on DNA that doesn't usually undergo recombination, so you don't get swapping around generations. And this tends to be mitochondrial DNA inherited generally from the mother, 
and Y-DNA from the Y chromosome, which tends to be the father. And they, because they are groups of SNPs, they describe much larger structural changes to the DNA. So it's easier to think, do things like trace mitochondrial diseases, um, and you can look kind of further back because of this lack of recombination. There is some debate on whether the mitochondrial DNA comes from only one parent because there have been some studies that show some kind of overlap from paternal DNA, but it's not common. It's definitely more normal. And most of the time it does come from your mother. So what's unique about mitochondrial DNA compared to like your genomic DNA is that it's much easier to trace mutations. It'll go back many, many generations until like when you first see it. And so that kind of, if it does cause like a phenotypic change, you will see these mitochondrial diseases continue through generations, regardless of whether the father had anything to do with it, because it's primarily a maternal mitochondrial issue. So mitochondrial DNA specifically typically codes for proteins that are involved within the mitochondria. So in relations to like oxidative health, you sure that you can, you know, make all the ATP and <laughs> live basically. So if anything is wrong with that, it typically comes from the mother's side and it makes it very easy to kind of confirm your maternal relations because of that. Maternal is a little more difficult. Typically we rely more on somatic cells to do that. So let's maybe mention GWAS. So GWAS is kind of tangential to this discussion because haplotyping is usually what's used mostly for the ancestry, but I think it's still important to maybe talk about a little bit. So GWAS is a genome-wide association study, and this is basically how we discover SNPs of interest. So all of these microarrays are designed to screen for specific SNPs, and a lot of them come from GWAS. In very simple terms, they basically look for genetic traits, usually SNPs, which are correlated with particular phenotypic traits. And this can be really, really varied. So this can be like super specific things like pasting coriander in a particular way. It can be hoarding. It can be your preference for dogs and cats. Ultimately, they need to be validated in a lab and with other population genetic studies because it's only really a correlation. And it's important to point out that many traits are polygenic, like schizophrenia. So they have many different genes that contribute to an increased likelihood of having that trait, but there's no singular genetic cause. And I'm just pointing this out because this comes up in a lot of like my kind of ancestry DNA, 23andMe reports, and it's kind of important to understand where this stuff comes from. There's a lot of bad GWAS out there, statistically underpowered, performed on just like really inappropriate topics. Topics. It's not something that you should necessarily trust. And I think it's one area of science where there's a lot of junk that ends up in these reports that come from private companies. GWAS, it's one of those things where I think people make a mountain out of like an anthill, not even a molehill, but like an anthill. <laughs> people will say like, oh, well, we see this one SMP and that's proof that this correlates to like this particular phenotypic trait when in reality, like like Kenny was saying, a lot of traits are polygenic. Essentially, there's multiple genes involved in their expression, right? And so saying that this one single nucleotide polymorphism caused this like massive change, it biologically, it's unlikely, especially if you get into the specifics of protein coding. And typically, there's much more involved in the control and regulation of an expression of a gene. It's not just that the gene is there. It's not that there's just this one thing will change it. You have secondary modifications like phosphorylations and methylations and things like that that also impact the expression of a gene and a phenotype. So it's more complicated than that, which is part of the reason why I have an issue with this. So let's maybe talk about the limitations behind some of these ancestry reports. And the first thing is that the reference databases are not perfectly representative. So basically, when you're looking at haplotypes, you are inferring similarity to other haplotypes from around the world. But the reference data set is going to influence how well you're able to make that inference. So Phil, I think you actually got a, a 23andMe report, right? And did you get some information about the composition of the reference database? I did. So I was just looking through it to see some of the kind of alarming 
disparities. So one thing that I would like to point out, the reference database, that's usually like, I believe, the individuals who were there, they were used for to, to reference, which would they then decide what my ancestry is made up of. Northwestern European, and so that was British and Irish, French and German, Scandinavian and Finnish. So Northwestern European, there was 2,966 individuals. Then for, let's say, uh, South Asia, that was 478 individuals. So you can see the drastic disparity between the Northwestern European and South Asian in, in that reference point. And I'm going to pop in here for a second. This returns us to our discussion of like sample size and why that's so important. Because something that could be significant with 400 people might not be significant with 2,000 people. And so not having an equivalent sample size is going to make the correlation of single nucleotide polymorphisms or other specific alterations in these microarrays not quite as accurate or at least sustainable. And I would also point out that in the Northwestern European, let's see, pretty much the majority, it would take us to 1900 were uh, British and Irish and French and German for the highest amount of reference points. And then, so British and Irish are 1,014, French and German are 957. Then Scandinavian is 631, and Finnish is 364. So quite a a large gap between 1,000 and 300. So this could be the difference between a European person getting one of these tests, or somebody of American with European heritage, and being able to pinpoint a specific country and somebody who is um, descends from s- slaves and getting a response that's like sub-Saharan Africa, which is an area of about a million kilometers squared <laughs> and is just really not useful information whatsoever. So these reference databases not being representative is massively problematic. Whole genome sequencing... So looking at the entire genome, all the exomes, all of the introns, which are basically bits that don't code for proteins, that can help because it improves sampling bias issues somewhat. But we still need the reference genomes from underrepresented groups, and we don't necessarily have those. So it's not a perfect solution. It is difficult, right? Because like when we sequence things like bacteria or viruses or whatever, we always have sequences that we're comparing it to, and we're looking at sequence homology, so how similar they are to each other. And without kind of that representative sequence for human genome for a particular person, it's way harder for us to say that, yes, there's sequence homology between these two people. They're definitely like more related than other people. It's way more, it's going to be so much more subjective without having that definitive control. Yeah, as far as I remember, there are like, for genetic studies, there are like specific human reference genomes that we use like for the whole genome. And there's a few different ones. And so I actually am not well educated on this because I do mostly bacterial stuff. So full disclosure, but basically the reference genome you use can really influence your results. And that's something that's important to bear in mind. So the other thing to bear in mind is twins can get different results in these. And why shouldn't that happen? Because twins should be genetically identical. But because of the way the algorithms work, that might not necessarily be reflected in the results. You get different percentages back. So one person might be 13% European and another person might be, you know, 30%. This is hard to explain. Um, I will link a blog post from a geneticist in the show notes, which explains it better. But it's basically because the algorithms take a variant from each microarray and they have to make a call on where each one is assigned to geographically. But because the algorithm uses a sliding window approach, so it slides along, it doesn't necessarily call them perfectly every single time. So it's not necessarily inaccurate, but it's because the categories are somewhat arbitrary and there's an inherent fuzziness in this data, which 
I don't think is well represented in the way that it's sold to you. It's, it's sold to you in this very storified way. But if twins can get different results, then it's clearly not as precise as they claim. We also have to take into account that like the fluidic microwaves that they're using to do these studies and this ancestral historical stuff, everyone is different. There's no DNA like microarray chip that is going to be the same same every single time. It's not possible. Those differences could also impact the results that people get. Probes you use, there's different kits, right? Like it's not the same. Yeah, exactly. I think there was a case I read about where a, a twin got their genome sequence I think nine months after their sibling. And basically because different chips were used, they got very, very different results. So you can't really compare very easily across individuals. I think the final thing to mention is with genotyping, you don't know whose DNA you've inherited. So you inherit your DNA in slightly different proportions, which is kind of a, a consequence of the process that Asta described. So it's an imperfect picture of your ancestry. You might have equal ancestry from you know, an Irish grandfather than an English grandmother, but you inherit more genes from the Irish side this does not mean you are more Irish. Yeah, you, from your family tree, you are you are equally, you know, one or the other. And you might even find that you're culturally more linked to one than the other. Because of what you've inherited, the test will give you a sort of false representation of your culture, I guess, if that, if that makes sense. Because also keep in mind that your inheritance is coming from your parents who had their inheritance from that, like, it's consistently kind of being split as we keep moving along. And so there could be recessive genes that maybe come from one particular region that you inherit, even though maybe your mother wasn't from that particular area, right? So there are more variants involved than just the fact that like, they're from this area, or, like they're from this area, the marriage, I mean, everything, it all has an impact. And so, you know, looking at it just from DNA sequence is maybe not the best <laughs> representation of what's actually going on there. Right. Yeah. Like me and my sister, <laughs> she's technically, quote unquote, more Swedish than me genetically, but we have the same parents. <laughs> and who knows, like, it's interesting, too, because my mom did it as well. And my grandmother and grandfather. And it's very, very interesting to see how certain things actually increase when it gets pat like because however the genetics are splitting is kind of hard to predict in a lot of ways it's random i mean when you when your cells split and they form these gametes there are crossover events that cause mixing of things it's not predictable a lot of these things happen by chance it's not something we can say like oh yeah we want to intentionally cause a crossover we can't do that genetically speaking well maybe we can but at least not to my knowledge and so for that reason tracing those kind of crossover events back it's almost impossible really and that can lead to even more confusion. I think another limitation to this is that this idea of partial versus complete matching. This is a problem we see more within this the CRISPR-Cas technology with guide RNA actually finding the sequence that it's trying to snip. But the same kind of idea applies. With such microarrays, there is a threshold of hybridization, which is essentially when you bring the two complementary strands together, which counts as then a link. So if this specific sequence which is linked to maybe a particular region is found, then you would say like it would increase the percentage. But then it's a question of like, what is the limit of or the homology between these two strands, that complementary homology? Like what is the requirement for that to be considered like a positive link to a region? Because if it's not 100%, then like what's the cutoff? Is 80% good enough? Is 50% good enough? Is 95% good enough? Depending upon the percentage of homology between the two sequences, like being the threshold that will also impact your results. And I think it kind of comes back to the different chip thing as well. Like they might have different thresholds and therefore like you get different results. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the final thing to mention is that when you have genetically quite similar populations or populations that have had like a lot of admixture, so for example, Scottish, English and Irish might have had a lot of mixture because there's a lot of kind of movement between these populations, it can be difficult to make an absolute assertion of where an individual is from or like what percentage. So when we take this back to kind of ancestry work, that gets a little bit complicated because, you know, historically there have been quite a few tensions between um, English and Irish people, for example, and getting those two things confused might be might have like quite significant consequences for you. But it seems as if when you're given this report that this is kind of a, a number that's set in stone. And what I think I really want to emphasize is it really, really, really isn't. These are living reports. They're, they're evolving with more and more samples. And you should always keep that in mind. Yeah, like I log on to 23andMe or sometimes they send me emails and they're like, your ancestry report has changed. Come check it out. And I'm like, oh, OK. Oh, look, I'm 0.02% more English today. Hell <laughs> is more Swedish. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, oh, I'm more Swedish today. It's very funny how that happens. Yeah, so it's, it's always changing. It's not something that's set in stone, which then kind of leads us to our next question. What are your thoughts on the use of DNA tests in a spiritual setting? Do you think they have kind of caused the drive towards an increased interest in ancestor veneration? Um, I think they've driven an increase in folkism. <laughs> I think people need to stop. <laughs> yeah. I have seen books. I have seen beginner witchcraft books that are recommended to people. Multiple, not just one or two, like a lot. Recommend to people to get a DNA test. And I was complaining about this to my housemate earlier. It just comes from such a place of privilege, <laughs> to say things like that because like someone who's adopted that's implying that their family who raised them is not their family you know I mean I am not a person who is donor conceived or has been adopted and I know there often is a push to find out you know who who am I really but that's their journey that's not for us to be like you got to get a DNA test I was just like shocked when I saw this and I was like oh my god like why are you telling people to get a DNA test also they're not like they're getting cheaper, but they're not cheap. And like certain people in my family, like my dad, refused to get one because I, we've had some really shitty ancestors and he frankly doesn't want to know about them. Like my grandmother got the test done and she hasn't looked at her results. She doesn't want to know. We literally only got them for her because my grandfather is like the genealogist of the family. We literally only got it for her so he could look at it because he really likes that stuff. She refuses to look at it. So it just blows my mind when I when I see that. Like there was a quote. I'm not going to read from the whole quote and I'm not going to say what book it is. I don't think because I don't want to I don't want to cause any drama. But there's a quote that says, I want to emphasize that when you're looking for gods and other spiritual entities to work with, please start with the pantheons that your own ancestors would have worked with. It just completely ignores syncretism. You know, like the Norse, for example, were syncretizing things everywhere as well. You know, the Anglo-Saxons, like there's a lot of cross-cultural heritage there. Or I know that in the south of France, they have baths to Roman gods. I'm pretty sure they have certain things like that in London as well. There's also Galatia or Galeria, where there were Celts who somehow, I don't remember why, but they traveled to ancient Greece think more towards the Asia Minor side and they had their own subculture called Galatia which was a mix between Celtic and Hellenic practices and then there were the Hellenic Gauls when a Greek explorer in the 6th century BCE came to the south of France so they came to what is now Marseille and it was a colony called Massalia that was like a 
Greek Gaul culture. So I just think it, it just completely completely ignores syncretism and how cultures actually develop you know like if we are all going to do that let's just go back to the common ancestor in which we'll all just be the same <laughs> i think the other problem that i have with it too is that like people will see that oh i'm like two percent irish that means that i can be involved in the irish like folk tradition that's not necessarily true and i think like i do not think that just because you're like this dna test tells you that you have irish blood in your veins it means that like you are entitled to being a part of the irish folk tradition part of it's because a lot of like especially in i think folk traditions maybe more than like ceremonial magic which doesn't really seem to rely much on ancestry a lot of it is so tied to the land and so you being an irish like american for instance means that you don't have the same connection to the land and the importance of that to the Irish folk tradition that somebody who lives in Ireland does. And so you aren't going to understand it to the same extent that they do. And in many ways, you can actually disrespect the tradition that you claim to be a part of. I have a friend who lives in Ireland, Eowyn, it's not you, <laughs> who rants all the time about the fact that these Irish Americans claim that they're Irish, but they don't know anything about the folk traditions in Ireland. They don't understand the importance of very particular areas. They don't understand that like the god, like gods and goddesses or the fae are associated with very particular regions. And there are reasons for that within the mythology. They don't have the same connection because they weren't raised, even though they may have Irish heritage, they weren't raised in the culture. And just because your DNA says you have a heritage does not give you the right to just throw yourself into the culture. You need to be respectful of the fact that it's something that you may not really be a welcome to or like you just need to be very respectful I think going into it and really learn it with an open eye realizing that you don't understand kind of the minute details of it I mean it's one of the reasons why I haven't engaged in like my Asian Indian culture because at least super heavily because I don't feel like I have the right to throw myself in and expect them to accept me as an Asian Indian when a I don't look it <laughs> but b like I grew up so far removed from the areas and the culture and the importances of the religion, even the caste system, like all of that. I don't understand that because I haven't lived it. And I don't feel like it gives me the right to then totally intercess and like involve myself in that cultural tradition. Now, I, th I think it's also on the flip side of that. I think it's important to note that there are cases, this happens a lot in communities that have experienced severe colonization. There is often this problem that arises in which people like indigenous people are barred or feel barred from connecting yes. with their heritage. And so I think there's definitely nuance to this idea. I don't know. It's, it's all about nuance and respect. You know, there is oftentimes with people a shared history, but, you know, growing up, especially if, you know, your ancestors were assimilated or die. Once they've assimilated, it's unfortunately really, really, really hard to understand that because oftentimes, like, I have a friend who's Armenian and it's not a part of her. It's not a part of who she is at all, even though the fact that her grandparents were moved, from, I think they, they specifically were from Armenia because it was assimilator die. And she's so assimilated now, it's, it's literally not even like a part of who she is. Whereas I know another person who is Armenian and her grandparents also came around the same time for the same reasons to America. And for her being Armenian is very much a part of who she is and a part of her family culture because her family kept it alive because she also chose to engage with that part of her. It, it gets complicated, especially in areas of assimilate or die or colonization. And I think too, just because you don't have DNA somewhere, I think that doesn't necessarily bar you from looking in... Uh, there's a, this is where we get into the problem with culture culture yeah. versus practice right. 
versus heritage. You know, like I will never be a part of Greek culture. I'm not Greek. I live in a very Greek neighborhood. I live in a house built by Greek people. My landlords are Greek. You just eat enough feta and try hard I enough. Just, <laughs> I just eat enough feta. I will never have Greek heritage. Something like Hellenic polytheism is not an ethno-religion. And it also touched like every aspect of the Western world. <laughs> That's where I think the, the conflation between culture and ancestry and practice fall apart. Yeah, I think that the um, the thing you mentioned with nuance is super, super important. And I, I don't want to like shit on anybody who's taken a DNA test because there are certain people who, for whom there is a larger cultural imperative. Like if your ancestors were stolen from their homeland by slavery, for example, you might want to learn about your ancestry. And like that is completely understandable. I just think it's important to acknowledge that the technology, the companies selling you these narratives are not necessarily going to sell you a true story because the true the, the story that is true is is messy and you know as as messy as as human relations today they they they're going to be um a little bit more complicated and lots of that data and information has unfortunately been lost to time but yeah i think it's really about the cultural respect more than anything else like you said so one of the there's like a couple of things that i think are are when things like dna and ancestry really fall apart one would be third culture kids so third culture kids is a term that refers to, um, let's say I have, I'd have two American parents, but let's say I was born in Japan. I am not really of American culture, even though both of my parents are American, but I'm also not really Japanese. So there becomes this third culture. So that's another sticking point. You know what, you know, is that okay then for someone to engage in Shinto or wear a kimono because it's a part of their culture? You know, what, what defines culture then in that way? This also falls apart with, again, like I mentioned, people who are adopted or donor-conceived persons now in the U.S. I will share some links to things below, but in the U.S., donor, any sort of that kind of fertility involvement of artificial insemination, is it's not federally regulated. It's not federally regulated. This is absolutely wild to me when I heard about this, because I'm a donor-conceived person. I'm like, yeah. what? There's no federal regulation. It is like insane. They're all closed, too. They're all closed. They won't let you see the records. And so I've actually had a few friends who are donor conceived people who have found their biological mothers, for example, through DNA. This gets into really tricky territory when we uh, are talking about donor conceived persons or artificial insemination when it comes to people of color. A friend of mine who I will link because they have some amazing resources on the problems of culture when you're a donor conceived person. They were raised by a second generation, I believe second generation Chinese family. They were raised in this family. Then they kind of learned that they were biracial, that they were half white, which causes a lot of confusion. And like a lot of times, like there was problems in which they wouldn't necessarily look how someone wanted them to look. And they ended up finding their biological mother, which is, they, they talk about their journey. I'll share their story down below. But yeah, it becomes a problem because like they were going to have another Asian donor. I don't know if it was specified if, it, if they were Chinese or not, which again gets into issues of people of color being lumped together. But that person somehow, they donated to someone else and they ended up having to use a white donor. We get into lots of sticky territories with bloodlines with that. It becomes focused and kind of blood quantum rhetoric. So blood quantum is a specific terminology that refers to ancestry and indigenous uh, Americans in the U.S. This was this idea created by the U.S. government that essentially was to disenfranchise Native Americans out of certain rights by basically being like, unless you have a certain percentage 
of quote unquote native DNA, native ancestry, you were not entitled to certain things, which you can see how how bad that can get. A lot of this rhetoric also leads into folkism. It happens in Norse paganism, unfortunately, very frequently. It also happens in Hellenic polytheism, although not quite as loud as the Norse pagans, in which it's like, oh, if you're not this, then you can't be a Norse pagan. And also discussions of eugenicsy, rhetoric, and white nationalism. It's never a good time when you're talking about bioessentialism. I think there's maybe this idea that you have like a Viking gene or, uh, you know, a, a witch gene, even some people think, or that events that have happened to groups that you are ancestrally linked to have had a really direct impact on your genome. That's not, well, that's not untrue necessarily, but it's not true in the way that you'd expect it to be. So epigenetics is a thing, and we kind of mentioned it, so you might have genetic modifications. So these aren't changes to the base pairs themselves, but kind of additions to the base pairs, which affect expression. And they can occur from things like starvation, for example, and they can be passed down across generations, but they're not necessarily super stable. That doesn't mean that you're inheriting events from the past. It's it's not quite as simple as that. Similarly, you might have an effect of a, like a catastrophic event, so like pl- the Black Plague, for example. That led to a massive selection pressure in the European population. So it kind of led to a divergence of certain Europeans from northern Indians. But again, you're not like carrying the memory of plague in your genome in a kind of literal way. It's just a a change over time. And I think that we need to remember these are just chemicals. Like they're not telling the story that I think a lot of people want to tell you. Does that make sense? Your DNA doesn't understand the nuance of culture and tradition and practice. And it, it just it doesn't care. Quite frankly, I think that's why like when people overinflate the importance of DNA in these kind of things, I'm kind of like, I don't really understand why, because it gets into this whole debate of like nature versus nurture, right? What's more important, like the natural biological processes that help you develop? Or is it the way you're raised, the circumstances in which you're raised, the religion in which you're raised, all of that, like which has more of an impact? I think biological essentialism has so many issues and it leads to other issues like gender essentialism, which we see in certain communities as well. It's a whole thing. The one thing that my Puritan ancestors gave me besides (laughs) just just really having a tough time was that they took lots of copious notes. So I know exactly who they were and how I'm related to them. We have written on here, would you get a DNA test? Uh, I already stated that I have. Honestly, it didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. <laughs> like, it really didn't. I was like, you're pretty English, Irish, French, and Swedish. And I was like, cool. And I was like, 0.1% sub-Saharan African, 0.01% sub-Saharan African. And I was like, yeah, it, it literally everybody is. <laughs> it's like, did not tell me anything I did not already know. I've heard some people who are really wild things show up uncovering affairs and people lying about who their parentage is and then confronting them after getting dna tests at that those are some pretty crazy stories but not for me i'm just gold old felicity with a very puritan first name and a very english last name so we know exactly where i come from I don't think I ever will. I mean, I don't care enough to, quite frankly, and like knowing the science behind them and knowing kind of how faulty it can be. I just don't feel the need to base my identity off of my DNA. Like there are so many other things that are more important to me, just like 
in terms of family relations and like engaging with my family who lives over in India and like learning about things through their lens and just talking with them. Like that's really how I would prefer to learn about the culture that I was born into. Well, not really born into, but like not super engaged with, right? Because I was born in America. It's just, it's not important to me. Like I don't, I don't care if I'm 2%, you know, Irish, the off chance of that, like my grandmother is from Wales. You know, it just, it doesn't matter to me because it, won't have a huge impact on the way that I like view the world because there are so many other things that have been far more influential than my genome. I don't know how I would answer this. I think if I did it, I'd do it myself <laughs> because I don't want to give my money to these awful companies. Who, Cheek swab, uh, do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I would see what's the whole genome. Just because I think that I, I really feel that a lot of this, the narratives that these companies offer are quite skeevy. And, you know, they're offering like Airbnb deals to your place of heritage. And it's like, oh, that's really dodgy for people who, you know, have had really like ugly historical pasts and you might not even be giving them accurate results. I think if I did do it, because obviously I would be looking at my donor's ancestry. So I'd be looking into ancestry that I have no idea about. It would more be for just like health reasons than anything else, because I don't, I don't really feel like spiritually I'm going to connect to somebody who I never knew. It would definitely be interesting, but I don't think it would really change my perspective at all. One thing that's like 23andMe, they really push a narrative. They claim to know exactly what town people are from uh, or what time they immigrated to the U.S. And it's funny, I checked some of it. And I, like, I, I'm very lucky in that my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather all did genealogical research. It's just in our blood, I guess, continuing the Puritan tradition. <laughs> they did a lot of research and I was able to be like, nope. <laughs> that's not correct at all some of it was correct but most of it was most of it was not correct I think that's the other thing too that I think I have an issue with is like there shouldn't be a narrative at least that strong attached to a scientific result like it should be impartial and they should be telling you yes you have these sequences these correspond to this according to x parameter but there shouldn't be in like true in true science there would not be a narrative there or at least if there was there would be two sides to it right so the fact that they push it at all just screams red flags to me. All right. Last thoughts? More nuance. It's nuance full November. I declared it on my YouTube. It's nuance full November. Stop closing things that aren't closed. It takes away from the meaning of closed tradition and ultimately harms closed traditions. So stop it. But yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say. My final thoughts are genes code for proteins. They don't code for culture or personality traits or anything like that. DNA is not going to give you the magical answer to your spiritual journey. It might be informative. It might be interesting. But you really, really need to bear some of these caveats in mind because it's definitely not as simple as I think a lot of places would make it out to be. And I can't top that. So I will agree with both of you. <laughs> But thank you for listening to this episode. We really appreciate you hanging through the whole way. Hopefully we made the science relatively understandable. If you have any questions, let us know. If you haven't already, feel free to follow us on Instagram. We do post hints about upcoming episodes and you'll also get notifications when the episodes go up. And we will also link our Discord down below if you would like to join where we talk about bad science. We have occult discussions. We talk about papers that have been published relating to both science and the occult. It's a very educational atmosphere, a place where we like to learn and chat and be philosophical. So that flows your boat. Come join us. In the meantime, have a great day and week, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody.